One historian wrote this about the city of Ephesus. Of all the Greco-Roman cities, Ephesus was by far the most hospitable to magicians, sorcerers, and charlatans. It was a port city open to traders and travelers as well as swarming with soothsayers and purveyors of charms. So imagine you're sailing into this city and it's just full of tradesmen, full of all kind of uh, uh, tourist traffic. And then all spread throughout the city, magicians, soothsayers, purveyors of charms. One of those popular mystery religions was called Eleusian. It's named after a city in Greece. And the religion was based on an unusual story between two Greek gods, which really isn't important. But to get into this group, this one of these mystery religions, you had to go on a special journey. You had to, to eat a midnight meal. You, you had to reenact this battle between these two gods. There was a special treasure chest. There was a basket. There was an unusual drink that you had to drink that had a psychotic effect on you. And once you went through this initiation, you got on the inside. You learned secrets. You began to have this divine encounter. Extremely popular back in Paul's day. In the city of Ephesus proper, there was a kind of magic referred to as the, the Ephesian letters. Think of them as the Ephesian magical words. It's the six magical words and you use these six magical words in some way to to make things happen sometimes the the six words were written on like a charm bracelet and you would wear it around and you would wear it sort of like a rabbit's foot or some kind of lucky charm that you would have or you could say these magic words over people and if you said them i guess in the right way you could control sickness you could control sexual passion you can control the outcome of a chariot race. You could cast out a demon. So this is the culture that Paul and this church planting entourage is coming into. Full of mystery religions. Full of secret initiation rites. Full of things that people were trying to do to get into a, a relationship or somehow have a divine encounter with, again, whatever they thought God was. So, so when we read this word mystery in this book of Colossae, we, we, Colossians, we have this background now. We understand that uh, it, when he uses the word in chapter 1 and chapter 2, immediately everybody pops up. Everybody begins to go, oh, he's, he's going to say something about a mystery. He's going to tell us about some initiation, right? And I can't believe it, but he's sort of the inside guy and he's going to broadcast it out. It's amazing. He's not just saying it's just for a few people. He's broadcasting this great mystery. He's revealing it. Something that's been hidden, he says, for ages and generations is now being publicly proclaimed. And it's how you get into a relationship with God. So I want to look at this word mystery and I want to look at it in two ways. First, I want to ask, what is the mystery? That Paul is talking about that comes in two parts. And secondly, I want to just look briefly at the proclamation of the mystery. So what is the mystery and then the proclamation of the mystery? First part, what is the mystery? Let's just look at this. Chapter 2, verse 2. The knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So Christ is 
the mystery revealed. He's the thing that's been hidden for all ages, for all generations. And now he has come. He's he's come into the world. And Paul is saying this thing that was hidden for generations has now come into the world. It's it's not hidden anymore. And when Paul uses the word hidden, he he doesn't mean it like um, like there's a curtain and the curtain opened up and suddenly you could see it. I don't think that's the way he's thinking about it. I think he's thinking about it like you could see it, but you couldn't really see it. Let me give you an example. How many remember, I think they were called 3D pictures. They were popular, I don't remember, 10, 15 years ago. And there were these big sort of poster-sized pictures, and you looked at them, and they were just wavy lines. Any, anybody remember this? And they didn't look like much. They were, just, they were all sort of geometric and uniform, and you looked at them. I never really got them. I'd just stand there. Who would buy this? But if you looked at it long enough, what happened? Uh, uh, an image came out. A lot of times it was nature or something, a waterfall. And you sat there and you go, well, you know, I've been staring at the picture for five minutes. I can't see anything, but it's, it's hidden to me. I can see it, but yet I can't see it. And I think when Paul's using the word hidden, that's what he means. He says, you've been able to sort of see it. But not really. And when Christ comes in, then you go, oh, I should have seen it all along. It's so obvious. And I think we see that, especially in when Jesus comes back from the resurrection and he's walking along the trail. Remember the road to Emmaus. And he's with these two disciples who are saying, we thought we could see it. But, but now we can't figure it out. This person, the the Christ, who we thought was the Christ, he's, he died. That's not what we anticipated. And now there's some rumors about his resurrection. And, and we're lost. We don't see. And Jesus comes alongside. And, and you remember what he does? He takes him back to the Old Testament. And he gives him this great Old Testament one-on-one, 101 class on the way to Emmaus. And what he does is he says... Guys, you've been seeing it the whole time, but you just can't quite see it. And so he opens up their eyes and they go, yes, we should have known that this person really was the Messiah, that he was coming for us, that he was going to have to die and and come back to life, that he was going to take us with him. Why didn't we see it? And then their eyes open and they go, that's it. He's Jesus. Now, at this point, I thought, gosh, I could give you 50 Old Testament illustrations that when you read them, you sort of see it, but you don't see it until you see Christ. And then you go, oh, yes, that makes sense. But let me just give you one. And it's really one of my favorites. And it's the story of Jacob. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. So in Genesis, there's four main events. There's creation, flood, The fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. That's Genesis 1 through 11. And then in Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis 50, there are four men. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So here we are with Jacob. He is the grandson of Abraham. He is the son of Isaac. And Jacob was a deceiver. He completely disregarded the faith of his father and his grandfather. He purposefully deceived his father, he purposely cheated his brother for his own financial gain. I don't want to have anything to do with the faith of my fathers. I completely reject that. 
In fact, I reject it so strongly that I'm going to cheat my father and my brother out of this financial gain for myself. And he does that, but his life sort of just ends up in a disaster. And he realizes now because he's cheated his own family, everyone's out to kill him. And so Jacob is on the run. And as he's on the run, in Genesis chapter 4, it says, The sun is setting, and Jacob falls asleep with his head on a rock. It's like to say, it's all closing down for Jacob. There's no more life for Jacob. He doesn't have anything. He's tried to cheat everybody out of stuff, but all he's got is a pillow that's a rock. And while he's sleeping on that rock, he has this dream. And in this dream, he sees a giant staircase. Some of you might know it if you go to a vacation Bible school or a children's book, uh, the Jacob's Ladder. And it's not really a ladder like you would think, just a a little two-hand ladder. It's, It's a giant staircase. Imagine being in a great home and there's this huge staircase descending down from heaven and sort of spiraling down and intersecting the earth. That's the picture that Jacob has. And on this staircase... Ascending and descending are angels. It's like this divine circulatory system that's going on that Jacob has no idea of. But now he sees, hey, God's at work in some miraculous way. And then during the dream, he gets the sense that the Lord is standing right next to him. Now, as the reader, you want to say, Jacob, watch out. You're just about ready to get clobbered. You have rejected this person, this being. You have rejected your own family. You've stolen from your own family. And during this dream, he's coming and he's coming to judge. And Jacob hears an incredible message that God is still coming for Jacob, despite that Jacob has decided he doesn't have the slightest movement toward God. Jacob is a deceiver. But he discovers in his dream that God is moving towards him, even though Jacob isn't moving towards God. God is moving towards this deceiver, even though the deceiver is not moving towards God. See, you can already begin to see something now that you couldn't see. Jacob discovers heaven Jacob discovers heaven is open to the worst kinds of people. Heaven is open to the worst kind of people. People that would disregard God and cheat their own family. Heaven is wide open to those kind of people. He he discovers that the Lord is descending the staircase for Jacob. He's coming for him. God's not at the top of the staircase saying, Jacob, you're messing up. Let me send down some instructions and you do these things and you can get up here. That's religion. That's not Christianity. Religion always is sending down information. Christianity is coming down and saying, I am the information. You hold on to me. I'm going to get you up the staircase. I'm not worried about your behavior at this particular point. God has come down. We see it's the gospel hidden in the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 1, 23. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
God has come down to be next to the worst kinds of people. And that Jesus, in John chapter 1, makes this very unusual statement. He, he finds this one guy named Nathaniel who eventually becomes one of his disciples. And he says to Nathaniel, John chapter 1, verse 50, Truly I say to you, Nathaniel, you will see heaven opened and the angel of God, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Isn't that interesting? He looks at Nathan or Nathaniel and he says, I'm telling you, Nathaniel, you're going to see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, Nathaniel, you'll see the angels ascending and descending to the Son of Man. You're going to see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, I am the way. I'm the way home. I'm the staircase. The way you get from heaven, from earth to heaven is Jesus Christ. I'm that person. And, and Nathaniel and these other disciples are going, I should have seen it the whole time. It was like this, this image that was there and I just couldn't see it. And Jesus begins to open their eyes and say, it's been there the whole time. Well, you could do that with 50 Old Testament stories. The great mystery that's been hidden What's really been there the whole time is being revealed, and that revelation is the person of Christ. Again, re- religion is a system of believing, uh, of belief telling people how to get God, how to get to God, and Christianity tells us how God came to us. The big difference. The Bible tells us how God is on the move towards the worst kinds of people, and that's good news. Second way Paul uses the word mystery. First, mystery, the mystery is Christ. Secondly, let's look at 20, verse 27. To them God chose, to them, meaning the Gentiles, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, God chose to make known these riches of the glory of this mystery to the Gentiles. That's you and me. And it's a mystery. It's, it's a mystery that these same people, not the Jewish people, but everyone else called the Gentiles, they now have the hope of glory. When God was on the move, he wasn't on the move just for one people group. He was on the move for every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and everyone equally stands at his feet. There's no spiritually elite. Everybody comes in the same way. Again, this could have been seen in the Old Testament. Galatians 3, verse 8. The scriptures, when Paul says that, he means the Old Testament, foresaw that God would justify, justify the Gentiles by faith and announce, listen to this, announce the gospel He announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. How did he announce the good news in advance to Abraham? Well, Paul says, all nations will be blessed through you. See, part of this mystery that's being revealed, part of the gospel, part of the good news is that God's coming for everybody. He's coming for the worst kinds of sinners and the worst kinds of sinners all over the world. There's no particularly spiritually elite group. 
And, and what was so explosive about this mystery being revealed was not the inclusion of the Gentiles, but the equality of the Gentiles. What, what created so much pushback in the early church was not that the Gentiles were included, but that the Gentiles were equal. It's okay if the Gentiles are included. It's out of the question if they're equal. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 3. Here, here, inside the church, there is no Greek or Jew, no circumcised and uncircumcised, no slave and free, but Christ is all in, in all. See, Paul's informing this congregation that inside the church there's no inner circle. There, there's no elite. There's no sort of front row class and then back row class. Sorry for you guys who are in the back row. See, see, every Christ is in all and he is all. So when you get in, you, everyone's in on the same footing. There's no sort of elite. There's no secret to get to the inside. It's an incredible Message In Acts 15, you see this frustration because because all the people that came in at the early church were all Jewish people. And then the Gentile people started coming in. And essentially, the Jewish people said, hey, it's OK if they come in, but they have to sit in the back. And the only way they can move up front to sort of to the elite class, if they start looking like us. The closer they look like us, the closer they can get to the inner circle. If you look like a founder, you're okay. But if you look like somebody else, you've got to sit in the back. Sometimes I wonder if I had been a preacher in Wilmington 200 years ago. Instead of 2014 or 2015, if it was 18, 14 or 15. And I preached at a downtown church. And I preach this text. But if you were black, you had to sit in the balcony. See, we don't have people sit in the balcony anymore. We don't have an elite class. We don't have the people sitting in the front and then sitting in the back. But it's not hard to make a barrier that may be invisible to our eyes, but very visible in the church. You just don't look like the normal. You're not close enough to the founders. So the, the closer you like what we do, the closer you like our music, the closer you like to what we dress and how we vote, then you get to the inside. That's how you get to the inner circle. Very easy to put these invisible boundaries up in a church. By just quietly holding on, quietly holding on to this thought that somehow because of your education or your wealth or your nationality or your skin color or your culture, you're just a little more equal than everybody else. And, and, and just if everyone thought a little bit more like you, we'd just all be okay. I don't know if you might be holding on to that kind of thought. Jesus wants us to understand the glory of this mystery lies not in that all people look like you, but that all people look like Jesus. 
Amen. We don't need everyone to look like Paul Phillips. Please don't do that. I'm begging you. We need people who look like Jesus. This brings me to this final point, the proclamation of the mystery. Part of the mystery, one side of the coin, is Christ. He's the mystery revealed. He's come. The other side is that he's come for everybody and there's no elite class. Everybody's in. And finally, this proclamation of the mystery. It may be obvious, but but Paul is revealing the mystery. See, at the heart of the mystery religions is secrecy. You can't tell anybody once you get in the inside how to get on the inside. But Paul is saying, hey, there's no inside. Come on in. And I'm going to tell you exactly how you get in. It's because Christ draws you in. And it's open to everybody. He's proclaiming it out loud to everyone. You see it in verse 28. This word everyone presents itself three times. I'm warning everyone. I'm teaching everyone. I'm trying to present everyone. Christianity is like the best known secret ever. It's not even a secret. It's, it's being broadcast now for all people to know. Just, just Let's close just noticing that Paul is teaching. He's teaching people because he understands they've been rescued by Christ. They've they've been called out of this domain of darkness and they brought into the kingdom of of God. And now he's got to teach them because you've got to learn how to live in a different way. At Christ Community Church, the very first part of our motto is we teach the Bible. We do it unapologetically. Because the worst kinds of people are in Christ Community Church by the grace of God. And I'm at the front of that line. And I need to know how to think and live differently. So the Apostle Paul, the Bible comes in and says, hey, this is, you need to shape your thinking according to the Bible, not according to yourself, Paul. And so we teach the Bible. Secondly, Paul is warning. This word means to plant in your mind. That the tone of it is, is counsel. It's not, it's not yelling. It's coming alongside saying, hey, you're going in the wrong way. I'm, try, I'm trying to warn you. You are moving in a bad direction. Please, please come this way. This is, a, this is the better way. And Paul is trying to, to warn these people to come towards Christ. 2,000 years ago, the Bible tells us God made a personal visit to the planet in the person of Jesus Christ. All the shadows of the Old Testament are realized when Christ comes on the scene. And he has come down for the worst kinds of people. And, of course, there's lots of different kinds of people that intersect in the Christmas story with Jesus, but probably the three most prominent would be the shepherds and the wise men would be two of them. So we have these two ends of the scale. We have the humble shepherd out in the fields. Nobody knows who they are. They're doing a job nobody wants. But yet the angels come to the shepherd and shepherds and the shepherds humbly come to worship Christ. The wise men, the smartest people on the planet, wise enough to know There's only one king to come and bow down before the king of kings. And then a third person knows, Herod. 
Herod doesn't come to Christ because Herod wants to be king. And I'm warning. I'm, I'm counseling. You don't make a good king. You don't make a good king. There is only one king. King Jesus. Come humbly, wisely to him and worship.